there guys and welcome back to another episode of the Realm of Unknown and I have a relatively interesting topic to talk to you guys about today but I mean for the most part I just want to mention that I apologize for this being a little bit late I mentioned over on Twitter that it was going to be pushed back a bit mainly due to me realizing just how many like actual specific little things in this location uh, have a few or like some ghost stories and I just kind of wanted to talk about as many as I could because I very much love this location it has a sweet little spot in my heart um, because I went there about a year ago from, I believe about a year ago from now at, the, at least from the time of recording this and uh, it was just fantastic it was a great like little day trip I got to see a lot of fun stuff, see lots of great places. It's a really interesting place. It's here in PA, and um, I'll mention it soon, so don't you worry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I again, I just I apologize for it being late. Things have been a little bit hectic over on my end right now. Just for you guys who may know me over on Twitter, I am current. <laughs> I'm currently still job hunting uh, after graduation, and. It's been a little rough, it's gotten a little slow, but uh, things have kind of ramped up again, and uh, I got a lot of interviews coming up, so, you know, maybe something might happen, <laughs> but uh, depending on how that goes, we'll see. Regardless, though, I still plan on keeping a consistent upload schedule for you guys, uh, primarily being on Saturdays, and this being an exception, as it's coming out uh, on a Tuesday, I believe, and then I'm going to be splitting it up so it's going to be tuesday for this what you guys are hearing now on the recording and then later on i'm going to upload a second part on the following saturday but yeah so regardless of what happens with my i guess work life uh, or professional life this is still going to exist i really want to keep realm of unknown sort of going and it's had a good momentum so far and i kind of want to keep that keep that movement keep that growth and i think it's it's definitely different than how i handled it with my youtube that was just sort of get everything out there do what you can and uh i mean surprisingly enough that despite not uploading there for like a year and a half or whatever like original content so to speak i upload these episodes there that's just hit like five thousand subscribers even though i know that's such like a minuscule number um but it's it's interesting to see, but I, I definitely prefer this format. It allows me to be a bit more free flow and uh, really talk about my own like thoughts on stories and stuff like that. And like, talk about a lot of the like more personal locations that I've been to, such as this one. And I couldn't really do that over there. And I, I think it's it, it gives a bit more of a personal flair to the whole podcast itself, being able to mention locations and hauntings and stuff that I have personally been attached to or personally have visited or, or toured at or have had investigations at. And I kind of want to stir or stir. I want to steer um, a lot of the narratives and a lot of the topics in that direction. Obviously, I'm going to hit a brick wall eventually because I have not been to enough locations. And I hope to change that because I really want to get some more like live location type stuff. I want to like see more things over in Jersey and down in Delaware, and I I just want to explore and travel a bit more. So with that, Realm of Unknown is going to keep on evolving. But for the time being, I hope you guys uh, are able to sit through my ramblings, and hopefully are very patient for today's episode. However, if you you know read the title or whatever, you probably already know. But today, if anyone who isn't from the area uh, might not know, today we're going to be talking about a small little town here in Pennsylvania by the name of Jim Thorpe. So I'm going to, again, keep this similar to all the other stories and stuff that I've done in the past, and we're going to talk a lot about the background first of the location, and then we're going to get into particular spots and areas that I want to focus on. And again, keep in mind this is going to be a two-parter. So if you do know the spot and you're like, why is he keeping this out? It's likely going to be in the next episode, so bear with me. So Jim Thorpe is a borough and also a county over in the Carbon County area of uh, Pennsylvania here. 
it from where I am currently, and I guess from Philadelphia for anyone who needs a geographical reference, it's fairly north. So I believe when we drove there, it was about two hours, give or take. So it's up in the Pocono areas. It's up in the mountains. And uh, due to that, actually, it it has a sort of nickname to it, and it's called the Switzerland of America due to it, like, it's beautiful. I'll, I'll have to post some photos that I took. Uh, it's just, like, it's nestled in this little valley section of all these mountains and all these, like, hills and stuff like that. Every like, It's just wooded areas for the eye can see, and it is just, like, picturesque. It is beautiful. And I've been to the Poconos before, and those areas like that I have been to personally, they're no, they're nowhere close to this. And it, it's very, it's very bizarre to explain because it's very small and it's very quiet. But at the same time, you're like, this feels similar to other towns, but this is like way too secluded. It's a very bizarre location. But after like being there for like half an hour, you kind of remove that facade and you're like this is a neat little place and it is it's a very interesting uh location it has a lot of history and uh so jim thorpe was founded back in 1818 and was originally called mutt chunk and i'm probably going to pronounce that utterly wrong throughout the entire episode so i apologize for that but essentially that word derives from a native name which uh, sort of loosely translates to bear place and it's from the original Muncie Lenape Delaware people of the area and that sort of native culture is going to play a bit more later so keep that in mind so the town like a lot of towns in the area uh was founded originally and started off as a company town which is essentially sort of like a glorified settlement and that is where all the stores and all the businesses and all like little craft stuff they're all owned by a larger group or entity so essentially it's like a weird pseudo pyramid like conglomerate whatever type organization uh, in the early days and essentially it's like a company owns the town and because of that like a lot of the employees and a lot of the residents they're all working for this larger entity so jim thorpe was founded by uh, joshua white and two of his partners who founded the lehigh coal and navigation company or the lc and n the town would be the lower terminus of a gravity railroad which is essentially something that allows the carts that carry in this case coal to sort of coast down rails and if you've been there there is a museum near some of the mines that sort of shows it like a, it has like a miniature of the what it is and it's it's essentially like a roller coaster it is a very doled down and like it is just a roller coaster for the the for the mine carts essentially and it, it's just using gravity to sort of push them along so that they don't really have to use as much power or man uh, manpower and stuff like that However, I do believe they used uh, mules and donkeys to get them into the mines. So that's a neat fact. <laughs> so uh, the carts, you know, they're used. They're using natural terrain to sort of get them down. And uh, the Summit Hill and uh, Mutt Chunk railroads were also put into place in order to bring this coal that was being brought down from the mountains. Uh, in order to head to the Lehigh Canal for further transportation into the Delaware River. So it's a big process and gets all these, these coal and all, which is pr- primarily what they're mining up here. It's getting all this coal down to specific locations that it then can be sent out across the East Coast. So from here, the rails in the pass will eventually connect to the LCNN's coal mines uh, and getting on all that to Philadelphia, Trenton, New York, and other major cities that can be found, you know, in New Jersey and Delaware at the time. And then from there, it can be sort of deviated and just spread out throughout the East Coast. So it's like a big little network. This is essentially what happened for many, many years in the founding of Jim Thorpe. So the town eventually grew uh, very slowly at first, uh, especially for the first like decade or so. 
and then rapidly became larger and larger and larger once the railroads were placed and the coal shipping centers were sort of like in full swing. So the Left Bank Company, or I guess community essentially, East Montchunk was settled later in order to support the short-lived Beaver Creek Railroad. Again, there's so many railroads and companies that come into this location, so there's going to be a lot of names being thrown out, so bear with me. This area, and I believe it's still here today, I believe I've visited this little strip. Uh, it's essentially just sort of like a compo- like a little strip of row homes for workers back in the day. And people still live there now. Uh, Essentially what this was was to provide housing for the citizens and the families of the workers who were off into the mines and also the logging industry that was sort of booming at the time. All of this only came into fruition again once, you know, the railroads came into play, the Lehigh Valley group came in and the banks came in, like all that sort of stuff. They sort of monopolized the region and with that brought all this growth so that's sort of how this town sort of it's kind of how this town was founded stayed alive and is like still sort of coasting off of today so it's it's definitely significant and it's something that you need to keep in mind when talking it's a lot of the towns here in pa sort of have a similar history but jim thorpe has a few more interesting snippets because is you may know, I have only been calling it uh, Machunk and uh, also Carbon County because it is not Jim Thorpe. It, like It's not called Jim Thorpe at the time. It has never been referred to as Jim Thorpe. And that comes into play much later on down the road. And it is going to be following the death of a renowned athlete in 1953 by the name of Jim Thorpe. So, Jim Thorpe, the athlete, not the town, uh, was actually one of the, was actually the first person of Native American heritage to win, or I guess obtain, a gold medal in the Olympics. So, he again, though, he was renowned, he was very famous for the time, but he did pass away in 1953, I believe, from a heart attack, or just, like, heart failure in general. And so Thorpe's widow, Patricia, grew rather impatient when it came to the prolonged time surrounding the funding for her husband's uh, memorial in his home state of Oklahoma. That is right. They are not in PA. So keep this in mind. Like, it's just so bizarre how they ended up getting the name. So they're in Oklahoma and his wife is trying to raise money in order to create a memorial service and a little monument for her husband because, you know, he's a famous athlete at the time. And to make matters worse, once the funding was in order and they did get enough money from, you know, like local businesses and citizens that sort of donated in order to, you know, or sorry, I should say, once the orders were like prepared and was ready to like do all the shipping and stuff like that. The Oklahoma governor at the time, uh, Jonathan Murray, he vetoed the bill which would contribute funds to the memorial at Athletic Athletic Park. Fun fact, actually. So Murray was actually, as in similar vein to Jim Thorpe, being the first Native American heritage individual to earn a gold medal at the Olympics, Johnston Murray was the first Native American to be voted governor of the United States. So, interesting little snippet. (laughs) So, Murray vetoed all this, and uh, it just sort of added so much fuel to this fire, and uh, Patricia was kind of just all over the place at the time. And to add further complications... Patricia sort of found out um, about the this little borough in uh, northeast Pennsylvania that is in desperate need of a boost in business and tourism. So in this particular instance, she is re- this is referring to the uh, Munchunk and East Munchunk areas in PA. At the time, there's two. And they're both really hurting after... You know, the decline in the uh, coal business, the decline in the, uh, the, what oh, I, I don't know why I'm blanking on this word, just the lumber industry. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. They're kind of hurting because at this time there's a bit of a decline and 
work isn't as prevalent and you know that whole monopoly that was founded in the early 1800s is sort of weaning away and and they sort of because they founded and sort of made everything about this town those particular industries they're kind of hurting at the moment and again this is the case for a lot of towns again being you know company towns and pa that sort of focused a lot on mining there's a lot of like ghost towns around here at the time jim thorpe was you know or i guess i should say uh was sort of in that direction they were heading into that course and they were really struggling and really trying to find a way to avoid that and this is when patricia got the bright idea to be like hey why don't we make a deal and so she made a deal with a lot of the local officials at the at both counties. However, according to Jim Thorpe's son, Jack, one of his sons, um, Patricia, she, she was a bit more motivated by money when it comes to this deal. I don't know how, you know, accurate all this is. Again, it's like a whole family dispute, so there's going to be back and forth, stuff like that. But Jim Thorpe's sons and, like, family and stuff they were a little bit against some of this and patricia was sort of just like all in and uh, eventually you know she got her way and despite all this the boroughs that she was communicating with would eventually merge together and would be called jim thorpe in honor of obtaining thorpe's remains from his wife so after the now named town of jim thorpe obtained the athlete's remains they did erect a monument to the Oklahoma native. So the monument that his wife did want was made. And the monument site contains his tomb to statues of him in sort of athletic poses and a historical marker describing his life story and how it ended. And the grave rests on a mound of soil. And this is a nice little fact of uh, Thorpe's native Oklahoma uh, dirt or soil i guess is the technical term and it's from the stockholm olympic stadium in which he won his olympic medal so it's a nice little sentiment to his life and his departure however as again it's a family thing and there's gonna be family drama several years down the line in the 20th uh, and the 21st century a huge lawsuit unfolded between the thorpe family and the town slash county and essentially, they wanted their dad's remains back. They wanted all this stuff removed. It was just this crazy, crazy lawsuit that took forever to settle. And eventually, it was settled. Nothing happened. The, like, the town kept everything. Nothing changed. It's just an interesting thing to wrap up this little thing. It's just it's just drama and issues. But that's how the town got its name. <laughs> Like I said, it's just so weird and confusing. Like it, the the closest thing in relation to Jim Thorpe and the actual area in which his remains are now is that he went to college like way out of the way, like two hours away from this location in PA. Like he like he has no real ties to this region. It's just bizarre and but that's the history. So you got to keep that in mind. But you know, at this point in time, uh, Jim Thorpe, the town is now, you know, reviving again. Like I said, I've been there and it's really beautiful. It's got a lot of neat little businesses. They've got some restaurants, you know, like an ice cream parlor here and there, um, some craft stores, some museums. It's really neat. It's small. It is real small. I will be posting a photo of it over on uh, Twitter and Instagram, but let me keep, let me put this into perspective for you. The downtown area, which is where I went for the most part, their broad street, like their major road is like part of the highway, essentially. And then from there, they have one other major street that stretches through downtown into like some more of the housing areas that are like a mile or two miles away from the downtown. And then from that, they have maybe like two or three roads and i mean like roads only one of them is really like drivable the other one you could like bike and walk down maybe it is so small like it's just baffling how how much they like fit in there it's very hilly like it's just so bizarre like when we when when i visited we were able to walk around like five times over 
within like an hour like it was so small but like so neat and it's all about these little details and i'm glad that it's doing well today i would definitely say if you are in the area i would recommend going and seeing it even if you're not interested in the ghosts and the stuff that we're going to talk about later it's just a neat little spot like we when we went i didn't even know this was haunted i didn't know any of this stuff until like a month later when I told a friend of mine that, like, hey, I visited Jim Thorpe for a day. It was neat. We got to go into the mines. We got to do all this stuff. And she was like, oh, Jim Thorpe, like, I've been there too. And, like, as we're just talking back and forth, she's like, yeah, like, apparently it's, like, super haunted. Like, there's all these stories about stuff up there. I, I went up there and I tried to do a ghost tour, but I couldn't get it, like, a time. And I was like, are you serious? And she's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I went to so many spots. Like, are i need to look into this and i just put that on hold i didn't look into it until now a year later and uh i am genuinely shocked by how many little haunted places there are in the area i mean i shouldn't be i should not be shocked it's pa there's a lot of history to this area and uh but it was interesting and again i recommend going if you don't go on a ghost tour you're still gonna have a lot of fun i went on a tour of one of the mines in the region which was super neat and i got a lot of photos of that so i will be posting those too um and i toured one of the manors of the location um we were trying to do another little visit to a uh little waterfall area in a in one of the parks but we were only able to do those two tours almost only one we just barely got into the last tour for the uh the asa manor and i will be talking about that later too so keep that in mind um if you do know the area um it's a very very important spot to jim thorpe and uh sort of another reason as to how it was able to sustain itself for so long but i'm sure you guys don't want me to ramble too long so real real quick i am going to pause and we're going to have a quick little ad read and afterwards we are going to talk about some of the specific locations here in jim thorpe and then some of the hauntings in relation to those stories. So sit tight, and I'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So we are back, and with this, I am going to talk about one of the first locations that I came across when researching the uh, Jim Thorpe. And I actually have not been into this location, despite you know like all the tours and stuff I went on. I, however, did walk by it, and I had no idea that it was a jail. It's very small, and from the outside, I thought it was just sort of like a warehouse, sort of like storage spot. Maybe like the military used it at one point, but you know, back in like the revolutionary times. But I had no idea that this was a jail. So this location that we're going to be talking about is the old jail museum, or just the old jail, or in some cases, it's the Carbon County Jail. It has a lot of names. And so this is a historical jail slash museum, and it's a very beautiful, like, two-story stone structure, and again, it resembles a fortress that sort of stands guard for Jim Thorpe, the town, and, you know, I was mistaken thinking that it was just, like, a military, like, barrack. Uh, So the building contains approximately 72 rooms, 27 in which are cells for the prisoners to be held in along with a few basement dungeon cells for solitary confinement. And I believe this was used up until, like, the 80s. So this was used for a while. This was a long-term jail. So women who were held in the jail were only held prisoner in cells located on the second floor. And the warden at the time, you know, they had wardens and they had like in-house wardens essentially and they had quarters of their own located within the building in this case they were located in front of the building which is kind of odd but okay so this little building in front of the jail is sort of like the warden's apartment area and it has a like a large living room you know a dining room 
two bedrooms for the family that you know they have at at the time and a sitting room. It's just a little quaint little house. But however, weirdly enough, the kitchen is not part of their house. It's so weird and like it has some relation to other prisons at the time. But the kitchen in in question, the kitchen that the warden and his family would eat at, was the exact same kitchen that all of the prisoners ate at. Like, everyone sat down and had a meal together. And for years and years and years, the warden's wife was actually the one who did the cooking for her family and all of the prisoners. Again, sort of something that can be seen in other prisons, but I just find that so bizarre. Like, it's just so weird to think that they'd allow that or they'd be comfortable with that so i I don't know it's weird it's just weird the building and the site so this being the overall jail and the the ground that it holds it is best known as the location of the hanging of seven irish coal miners known as the molly Maguires during the 1800s so this is sort of what makes the prison And this is sort of the main story that we're going to talk about for this location. So on June 21st, 1877, otherwise known as Black Thursday, and it has a few other names, Alexander Campbell, Edward Kelly, Michael Doyle, and John Donahue were hanged at the same time on gallows erected inside the old jail museum cell block. So later on, this is just the first batch of men who were hanged, on March 28th, 1878 Thomas P. Fisher was also hanged in the same location and the following year from here on January 14th 1879 James McDonald and Charlie's Sharp were also hanged on the same gallows. So historians today feel that the Molly Maguire's trial was sort of a surrender of state sovereignty and keep this in mind like this gets a little crazy and i think personally yes there was a lot of overstep uh that should not have taken place how this all went down was and one article that i found pretty much sums it up perfectly a private corporation this being the you know the coal mining industries initiated an investigation through a private police agency being the pickerton detectives and a private police force, being the Coal and Iron Police, arrested all of these individuals, these alleged offenders, and then a private attorney, who was also employed by the corporation that hired him, being the coal companies, prosecuted these men. And they don't mention it, but another source also says that the judge in question was also a huge friend of the coal owners, and they were a massive supporter of him. So they, he got a lot of funding from them. And then it was just like, hey, you got to make a decision on these guys that we don't like that wronged us, apparently. So wink, wink, help us out. So the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania merely provided the courthouse and the gallows. Like the state of Pennsylvania had nothing to do with this at all. People were literally charged or accused charged put on trial and then hanged because a corporation thought that they were at fault like seven people were just killed by a company and like the state had nothing to do with it it's just crazy to think about and definitely would not would not pass today i hope would not pass today and before their hangings the men all proclaim their innocence and two To this day, historians believe that many of the men that were condoned were actually falsely accused of a murder, which initiated all this stuff. Essentially, how it started off was there was a lot of, you know, hostility and a lot of trauma surrounding, you know, the co-workers and wanting a bit more pay, a bit more, you know, respect and all this stuff. And there were a few disputes and a few riots and a few uh, protests that, in one case, resulted in the death of one of the coal managers, you know, being someone specifically employed by these large corporations, and that is just what started the ball rolling and got all this chaos to ensue. And again, today, historians believe that this was essentially just a witch hunt, and all these men were, you know, falsely accused. 
Though, again, we don't really have any concrete evidence as to who did it or how. It's just, it's just baffling. So, before the hangings, one of the men in particular put his hand on the dirt floor of his cell. And then firmly placed it onto the wall, proclaiming this, quote, This handprint will remain as proof of my innocence. That handprint, in question, which is located within cell 17 of the prison, is still allegedly visible to this day for everyone to see. So, it has been almost 200 years since this has happened, and it is still visible, and this is despite past warrant, uh, past wardens of the jail trying their absolute best to eradicate it. And they have, you know, they've washed it, they've bleached it, they've painted over the handprint, and they've even taken out a small piece of the wall and replastered it. Nothing works. The handprint continues to come back after every attempt, and the handprint was originally thought to belong to that of Alexander Campbell one of the men who was killed during the first, like, wave of hangings. However, some researchers have debated this and is now believed that it is the um, handprint of Thomas Fisher, which was uh, one of the two men that were hanged during this second little batch. I've looked at the photo of this, and... um, the This is, like, the biggest draw for the museum. You know, like, it's like the, oh my god, there's a haunted handprint that never goes away, and it's, like, this unique thing that it's, like, specific to the, the prison. I have a few questions about it, because apparently no one can touch it. Like, no one has access to it. The only way you can see this handprint, and, like, this is nowadays, at least, uh, the owner's will not let you enter the room. You can only view the handprint in this, like, dark cell from, like, a little slit that the prisoners could, like, look through and you could look through and like on the door. Like, the door is locked. They don't let you in. They don't let you touch it. They don't let you investigate it. They don't let you do anything to the handprint. And it's, like, they have, like, a highlight over it to show where it is. It's literally, like, the definition of, like, a clickbait youtube video with like the red circle they just put a yellow circle around it it's just it's just bizarre and i've looked at the photos and i've looked at some of it and personally i don't know how i feel about it because they do mention that like hey a portion of the wall was taken out and replastered however it does not look as though it was replastered. It doesn't look like anything was taken out of it. it. It, I believe the the walls all down there were made of concrete too. So I don't know, or cement. Like I don't know how you replaster that and not make it seem as though anything has changed. And it's just bizarre. It doesn't really, it doesn't sit well for me. And it looks somewhat like a handprint, but it also looks kind of like a smear mark. So I don't know. Um, but it is definitely like the biggest draw for the the, the prison itself, and uh, you know, owners have claimed that it's happened. People who have visited in the past have claimed that it's legit, and I mean, even a former inmate to the jail by the name of Walter uh, Rodriguez, otherwise known as Mountain Main, uh, he was actually held at the jail at, during his incarceration, and he was held in cell seventeen. So he was incarcerated due to his connection to the murder of a teenage girl, and he was also you know, like a member of a biker gang called the Warlocks Motorcycle Club, and he's just not like a great guy. And the current owners of the prison claim that Rodriguez, he was terrified. Like, he did not want to be in this cell. He wanted to be moved. He was, like, in fear all the time. He begged and begged and begged to be removed from cell 17 and placed anywhere else in the prison. Maybe it has some, you know, validity, I don't know. So on top of all of this, what do other people see in the prison? So visitors to the jail claim to have their hair being touched by unseen hands or the sensation of, you know, hands or someone resting on their shoulder when no one is behind them. Like they could be up against a wall and they'll feel as though a hand is pressing their shoulder. Orbs have very frequently been captured on both uh, photography and videos 
pretty much everywhere around the location. This is both by like staff and visitors alike. And also there are some accounts of mirrors in the location having this weird little fog on them when a photo is taken that is not there in real life. So guests have also reported the, the sensation of being followed pretty much throughout the prison. And some in particular claim that whatever was following them, whatever sensation that they were feeling, followed them home after visiting the jail. And despite all this, the owners of the prison actually claim that, for the most part, the spirits that inhabit the jail are relatively kind and mundane, and for the most part, none of the accounts are really that, you know, like, evil in, or cruel in intention, except for, you know, following you home and creeping you out and stuff like that. And lastly, I just want to mention one quick little story that it's spoken on ghost tours of the location. Not the ones in the jail, but tours of the of the town itself. And this is in question to Charles Sharp, one of the last two men who were hanged on the prison back in 1879. Sharp was, you know, he was sentenced to death. He was given a date in which he was going to be hanged. And his wife actually was able to obtain a stay of execution for her husband. However... By the time she got it, and by the time she got back to the jail, the doors were locked, and it was a little too late to save her husband. It was a sad thing for her, and Charles was hanged, and his wife was left to grieve over his body after they brought him down from the gallows. Two uh, Witnesses at the event, witnesses that were within the jail, say that oftentimes she carried the fragrance of lilac on her person so that when she would visit her husband and when you know he was in prison it would help ease his anxiety about the whole ordeal and she wore it that day in particular to help calm him down and because you know he was so anxious and so stressed out about possibly getting a spare of execution uh, that she wanted to like calm him down and make him happy once she he received the news so to this day People who have visited the jail don't only claim to have seen spirits walking around through the halls and within the cells, they also claim to smell some spirits. And every now and then, when visitors who are either on a tour or just people who are doing investigations of the location, they will notice a very strong scent of lilac, in particular, right beneath where the gallows once stood. And that, you know, it's... Interesting to think that fragrances can follow people even after death. Uh, I don't know in particular. I, I would very be much be interested in investigating that location because I feel as though it would be a fun place to see. And in a lot of ways, it reminds me of the penitentiary in Philly. I It's not the exact, but I've been to a few older jails and um, like holding facilities that, to me, this this feels very similar. And I'm very interested in seeing if any of these claims are true. Uh, so the next major location that we we are going to talk about in today's episode is that of the Inn at Jim Thorpe. So that is its name. It's called the Inn at Jim Thorpe. I'm just going to call it the Inn so as to not be too confusing. And so this location, similar to the jail, similar to the whole town in itself, has a long and somewhat convoluted history to it and so bear with me when it comes to all these names and titles and it's just complicated so but keep in mind that i'm referring to the same location the same structure being the inn cornelius connor constructed what at the time was called the white swan hotel in order to accommodate you know the thousands and thousands of people who were visiting uh you know, at the time, much chunk, and a lot of these people, you know, were visitors that were just kind of coming in due to the boom in the coal transportation industry, and that whole era of just financial intrigue, and um, just sort of just, it, it's similar to like, you know, how like the gold rush in the West, a lot of these towns had a lot of a uh, coal rush, <laughs> so to speak, and a lot of businesses took this uh, as an opportunity, and so did Connor's, as he constructed this hotel for a lot of those potential workers and their families and stuff like that. So the White Swan was one of several large-scale grand hotels 
within the town at the time. So Connor would later have to, and this is where it gets convoluted, he would have to rebuild this hotel after it burned down during a major fire uh, that consumed a lot of the town at the time back in 1849. He rebuilt the Swan Hotel, or the White Swan Hotel, my bad, and after it was constructed again, he renamed it to the New American Hotel. Now, there's been two hotels, same guy, same spot, and the new hotel was pretty much an archa- uh, architectural gem to literally the entire town. It was a beautiful, beautiful structure, and it was pretty much like the heart of everything during the rest of the 19th century and into the 20th. This, however, did not last, because... <laughs> Of course it didn't. So similar to a lot of the businesses and a lot of, you know, the area in general, it was hit real hard by the depression that, you know, swept the country. So along with much of the county, a very similar fate was suffered by many of the region's coal industries. And during the time, the sort of economic unrest sort of bankrupted a lot of places. And the hotel was definitely one of them. So this time period in question is also correlates with why the town needed you know like a resurgence and that's why they you know they got jim thorpe's body that's why they got all this stuff this it was due to this they got hit real hard by the depression and they just really couldn't bounce back to what they once was uh, once were and this wasn't un- until like the 80s or so when the hotel was able to really bounce back And ultimately, you know, this was in relation to Jim Thorpe being obtained by the town and business coming back. And at this time, the hotel would officially rename itself and obtain its final title as The Inn and became The Inn of Jim Thorpe. So the restoration of the hotel actually served as one of, you know, the major catalysts for Jim Thorpe's revival at the time, aside from, you know obtaining Jim Thorpe and becoming this sort of mecca for tourism, the the hotel sort of helped spark that and helped became a place for people to stay. And it to this day, and I've seen it, it's a beautiful, beautiful building, uh, it remains like a prime landmark along the major center within the Broadway street. So it is pretty much like the center hub of downtown. And it's beautiful. Like I said, it's a really great spot. I did not stay there, I only did a day trip, but I wish I did, because apparently it is very much haunted, uh, and we're going to talk about that right now. So according to several visitors to the inn, who have stayed overnight at the inn, there have been a lot of unexplained activity in many, if not all, of the guest rooms. And in a lot of these cases, a lot of the visitors in their rooms report that chairs that were in the room had been overturned while they were sleeping in bed. They did not notice this. They were in bed and furniture is moving about, and they did not notice this until the morning when they woke up. So on top of that, TVs have also been reported to mysteriously turn off and on on their own. Objects have been reported to move around throughout the rooms. Strange orbs and shadows have also appeared within photographs, and in most cases, These were not photographs that wanted these orbs. They weren't ghost hunters. They were just people taking photos. And their photos get riddled with orbs. And uh, it's interesting that in most cases, it's the people who are not looking for the ghosts that actually spot them. So in particular, room 210, previous, uh, previous guests have reported to have been awoken by a very strong smell of smoke throughout the entire room. However, when they do awake, there is no smoke. They don't spot anything. There's no real evidence of fire. There's no reason as to why they smell the smoke. And shortly after, it just dissipates. And, like, the absolute worst, in my opinion, uh, there is another spirit coming up, but, like, this would horrify me. In particular, at the inn, if you are a young child, do not go there. Because sometimes children of guests who visit and stay at the inn have claimed to have been awoken in the middle of the night and spot a ghost lying, sitting, or like 
within their bed. Like, like they're like within it, and they're just standing there. Or they're like they're sleeping there, and they just like disappear after you spot them. I would freak out. I would sleep out on the street that night. I like, no, no. Like I, I've been on family trips where we go places, and yeah, like you know, it's spooky and stuff when you're younger, and you're like, oh, you're already like scared because this isn't my bed. This isn't where like my house. I don't know this place. Like, do the doors lock? Like, do the maids get in whenever they want? Like, you you have all these questions. I don't want to wake up at, like, 2 a.m. and spot this, like, shadowy being or, or, or physical person, like, or of a, of a spirit just sleeping in my bed and then, like, like, dipping out once they, like, I see them. I would be mortified. So... If this is the case and kids are actually having this, do not bring your kids with you or at the very least let them sleep in your bed or all of you can sleep in like, I don't know, camping gear. I, like, I'm trying to figure out a way to like make sure the ghost can't get into the bed with you. Oh god, it's just ugh, it's the worst. <laughs> um, so the last spirit that I want to talk about uh, and last story with the inn in particular is the story about a young woman by the name of Madeline. So, I can't find her last name, but Madeline has a specific relationship to the inn. So, her story begins with the plans in which to meet a secret lover of hers at the inn, and at the time it was the Swan Hotel, so the original incarnation of it, and the two individuals, the two lovebirds, the young the young adults, so to speak, they planned to reserve two rooms, one for each, and they wanted it to be next to one another up on the third floor. So, of course, this is very similar to a lot of, like, you know, Romeo and Juliet type tales or lost lover type stories. And, like, it, it's one of those. And, like every one of them, there is an issue, of course, that they don't account for or they don't plan for, and it makes everything go awry awry or whatever um so madeline got her room she's up on the third floor she's waiting for her lover and when her lover arrived he was told at the front desk that parties of single men and women had to occupy separate floors that's just sort of how they did things i, I don't know why they they just did and he was given a room on the first floor neither of them were really aware that the other was already at the hotel and Madeline was just, like, overcome with grief in the fact that, like, where is where is he? Like, did he leave me? Is he never coming around? Like, is he breaking up with me? And she is just totally distraught uh, to the point that, you know, she sort of put an end to all her sadness permanently, similar to a lot of these stories. To, and, and personally, I just want to point this out real quick. I don't know why they didn't plan for this. Like, I, I know you're trying to, like, meet your lover and all, but if you're going to, like, one of the only hotels in your entire small town and you don't know that they separate you if you book a room by yourself, it just seems odd. And also, it sort of reminds me... <laughs> it sort of reminds me of college dorms during freshman year. It's just like, the first floor is for guys, second floor is for girls, third floor is for girls, fourth floor is for guys. Like, it's just so weird. But Madeline ended up you know, ending her life uh, out of sadness and disarray. And since this point, since this whole event took place, guests at the inn, so the inn now, nowadays, has reported that, similarly to other reports, when the lights go out unexpectedly and the power just sort of goes out, sometimes you can spot the figure of a girl in, like, the darkness, just wandering about throughout the building, and this girl is dressed in a very flowery, like, spring-type dress, and she has no face. I don't know what it is with all these no-face stories, but this is, like, the third time I've talked about one in, like, like, it, like I don't know, I, I'm not planning this, I swear I'm not, but for some reason we keep falling on these no-face ghosts. And in this case in particular, many people of the area believe that they're, this particular sighting, that this particular spirit in question, uh, is more or less an omen for something to come. 
and that if you were to witness a faceless spirit, in this case the faceless girl, that you should take it more as a warning rather than something that's like eminent and you need to change something about your life before things take a real real bad turn for the worst curious enough in relation to that story of like how you should perceive this faceless girl a lot of people don't think that it's madeline like they don't think it's madeline like they think that this is a different spirit altogether a completely separate entity that was too late to show themselves to madeline in order to let her change her life but because of all this it just sort of like guess like sparked and was a catalyst for this individual spirit or entity to hang around and stay within the inn and it's interesting i've definitely heard stories of more like natural spirits so to speak like entities that aren't really forged from a human soul or someone passing on or trauma and stuff like that but rather just something on its own and i would be interested in doing some topics in the similar vein but you know if you're there at the inn and you spot a faceless girl walking around at night by herself you might want to evaluate your life at the moment and see if there's anything you can improve upon so last off last little like oddball story that i want to mention real quick is that of a woman by the name of sarah so this story is not in relation to the inn or the the jail but it's rather up the street from the the inn like down down the road a little bit And Sarah was a nurse who treated many patients during a cholera uh, outbreak and, like, epidemic during the 1840 or 1854, like, outbreak, chaos or whatever of, like, the area. So there was a big problem with cholera, and she was a nurse at the time, and she was helping a lot of patients. And this little guest house not too far from at the time would be, you know, like, the Swan Inn or the Swan Hotel and stuff. So, again, just up the street, there's this little guest house, and visitors of the location now, like, that stay there, claim that toiletries and other small items had been moved on their own, that they're not there once they get back to the location. They've also claimed that a lot of them get stuffed down the toilet for some reason. I don't know what that's about, Sarah, but I I know you had toilets back then. They might not have been our version, but you know what they're used for. The electricity is also known to mysteriously turn off and on on its own within the room. In particular, that Sarah did treatments for her patients. So if you're in that room, I don't believe it it has anything to do with what it was back in the day. It's just a room that happens to have changed. But the power will go out, the lights will flicker on and off, things like that. And many conclude... Many people like of the area, tour guides, people who visit it, because all of the accounts are not malevolent in any way, a lot of people think that Sarah in death is sort of just continuing her work from life, that she isn't complete and she just wants to continue to take care of people. She wants to take care of the guests, the house, and it's like a sweet little thing. And the location definitely plays that up because it's like, you know, it's a sweet little spirit that just wanted helps take care of you. And I thought that was a nice little way to end it um, after talking about, you know, like suicides and hangings and all that crazy stuff. So if you are to the area and you want to go say hi to Sarah, you go say hi. I'm sure she'll throw your stuff into the toilet. Um, but yeah, so that's the last little thing I want to talk about for this episode. Again, we're going to have a two-parter. And if anyone who knows of Jim Thorpe or knows of the area, if you are listening and you're like, what the heck? Why did you leave out like some of the most important stuff? Bear with me because I am going to save a lot of the things that have to do with, you know, uh, Asa Park or, or Asa Parker, who was a very wealthy man who helped rejuvenate Jim Thorpe uh, and his family who sort of is, they have a very strong tie to the region. Uh, I'm going to talk about them in the next episode. And I'm going to also talk about, you know, like the mines and the manners that they had. I want to talk about all of that together because a lot of it ties into one another. And also there's not too many particular stories uh, in relation to them. And 
I'm also saving these because these are also the locations that I just so happened to have been there. I didn't know they were haunted at the time. I didn't know that you could do ghost hunting and stuff. But I did visit the mines. I was on a tour for like two hours down there or so. I did go into the Asa Manor. I did visit a lot of these locations that have relation to these particular people and these particular ghost sightings. So if you are interested in that, stay tuned. I'm aiming to get this one uploaded on this coming Saturday. So this episode that you're listening to should be uploaded, I believe, on the 20th at some point, which is a Tuesday. Uh, And that following Saturday is when part two will come out of Jim Thorpe. It's my first little two-parter. I was going to do a two-parter for, um, what's it called, for Bobby Mackey's, and I never ended up doing that. But I feel as though this is a good little two-part series. They're both going to be roughly about an hour, maybe under an hour. Um, But I feel as though if I combine them, it'd be just too much, and it'd be too much like back and forth and so many spots. And I wanted to give them, you know, their own little attention, their own little... uh, critique because I, I i like to talk about my own stuff sometimes and i feel like it's a good way to sort of separate them is to separate the ones i've been to and the ones i haven't so <laughs> we're gonna do that and they just happen to coincide with relating to one another so yeah i mean i hope you guys enjoyed again if you've ever been to or are near you know car uh, carbon county pa and you want to go visit a really neat town or get some really good food and see some great sights definitely check out Jim Thorpe. They've got a little train area that can, I think, take you from Harrisburg or Philly. I forget where it takes you from. And so, you, like, if you want to, you can take a day trip on a train and get there. Otherwise, it's a trip. Go through the mountains. It's very beautiful. So if you're going with anyone like I did, I would definitely recommend it. And if you want to go ghost hunting, definitely plan it ahead of time. Uh, I believe the prime hotspot for ghost hunting in these areas at least in Jim Thorpe in particular, from what I've found, uh, is between October and February. However, if you want to do it at the jail, you have to do it later. So I believe the jail is only open from, like, Memorial Day to Labor Day, give or take. Like, they're not open very long. They're mainly in the summer and the spring. So if you are there and you want to go ghost hunting in the fall, you unfortunately won't be able to do it at the jail. But there's a lot of cool locations, and there's more to come in the next episode. So bear with me, and uh, keep in keep in touch or whatever. I don't know why I keep in touch the, the podcast. <laughs> but listen in for the next episode if you want more spots uh, in particular to go check out. And uh, so yeah, so I'm going to end it here because I'm rambling. And if you guys want to stay in, stay tuned and listen for new topics and stuff uh definitely check me out on twitter and instagram at realm of unknown i would be posting a lot of my own personal photos and stuff like this from jim thorpe onto that uh those pages so if you want to see my own little adventure into those spots um definitely check me out there and i'll keep you posted if you have any of your own personal stories from jim thorpe that you're like hey you want to listen to this or read it uh, you can email me at realmofunknown at gmail.com. And uh, I'm going to start mentioning this at the end of each episode from now on because we do have it, and I do definitely need to, to write something up so that I can make a little promo for it. Uh, but we do have a Patreon. Um, it's very small right now. I'm only really allowing like $1 to $5 tiers because I don't. I feel like too much more would be kind of pointless. It's a little subscription thing, so it should be small. And if you guys want to check it out, I will be posting my show notes over there, as well as all my sources. If you want to, you know, look into the location as well, or if you want to talk about it for your own stories, uh, all the links and all the sources will be posted there publicly, so you don't need to subscribe for that. But if you want to check out the show notes, you want to take part in future discussions, or want to be part of some polls, or listen in on specifically patreon oriented content that will be coming out each month uh definitely check it out i am trying to post there more often a lot of the stories that i feel as though won't be big enough for like a full episode i deviate to over there so i post a lot of links a lot of stories a lot of stuff like that 
And uh, right now, Sergio, you're my number one. <laughs> uh, and if anyone else wants to join Sergio for being a uh, supporter of the podcast over on Patreon, I definitely appreciate it. And uh, I definitely want to start promoting that a bit more because I I want to keep this going. I, I love doing this, and I love you guys as a community. And I think it's something that I would want to pursue further and help really grow and um, stuff like that. I also... <laughs> This is a little snippet, but I've been thinking about it lately. I definitely want to do some more paranormal-themed artwork and design because I just love that, and that's what I do. I'm definitely going to be posting there a bit more, too, with that. Like, you know, posting my roughs, doing some of, like, the progress stuff, sort of giving you guys a behind-the-scenes for that. You know, I think that would be interesting. So if you are interested in that, definitely check it out. Uh, Patreon, which is Realm of Unknown. The links will be in the descriptions here on pretty much all the podcast platforms you listen to. And again, it's only a $1 tier or a $5 tier. And the $5 tier, the only difference is you get some more specific uh, content and episodes and uh, some interesting newsletters and some discounts if I do start to, to if I do start to do merch. I at the moment it's not there, but you'll get like a $10 discount for stuff that, that do come up down the line. So again, Thank you for sitting back and listening to my rambling as we wrap up this episode. And remember to stay tuned for the next episode into Jim Thorpe coming out this Saturday. And I hope to see you guys then. And until then, remember to stay spooky.